0: Wonderful, wonderful praise, very enthusiastic, that's the way the book of Psalms has to do it, turn up all the instruments loud and sing with all your heart. We're in our third uh, sermon on uh, the book of Daniel, the character of Daniel and his friends, and uh, we'll go six sermons in this little mini-series in our Hall of Faith series. Uh, And then most likely we'll go over to Nehemiah. Let me get right to this third chapter of Daniel. Uh, If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, these are available out on social media, podcasts, church website, etc. Hopefully they'll be a real blessing to you. Just as uh, recently as a few weeks ago, uh, I felt compelled to cancel my participation in a uh, pastor's conference, in a gathering of pastors and leaders, uh, they are predominantly uh, SBC leaders. Uh, our staff here and our elders are very apprised of the situation. And uh, I've discussed it with our, our elders and with our staff. And uh, Susan and I withdrew uh, from a particular conference that we were involved in uh, over the treatment of sexual abuse victims in our churches. Uh, you'll notice now that sometimes you'll be watching TV and where they would normally say, you know, did you serve in the Navy? Do you have mesothelioma? Uh, call Schlachter and Schlachter. Do we cheat and howl and we will, uh, uh, you know, get some money from the federal government. I notice now that they're running ads on TV. Have you been sexually abused in a Baptist church? And you're going to see a whole lot more of that. Because the conservative, largest conservative a Christian group in America is on the wrong side of the issue. And they're just now catching up with that. And the old boys club will not relent. Let me say it a better way. The old boys club will not repent and get on the right side of the issue. And if you have this circle the wagons, protect the predator mindset about sexual abuse and and impropriety, and, and using your power in the wrong way. Uh, also, what you'll find in the churches is a real repression of women's roles in the church as well. Those two go hand in hand. Uh, they, are, they, they really can't be unlinked. So, I don't want to talk about that this morning. I just want you to know that Susan and I withdrew from a meeting we were in because the prevailing attitude in the room is, like I preached a few weeks ago, well, the woman's probably to blame. She wouldn't dress so sexy. Well, then we could control ourselves, which is totally, totally the wrong answer. Okay, And I've dealt with this extensively in in this whole series of sermons that I've been preaching. Uh, And and as I said, I don't want to rehash all of that, but I just want to say this to you. Uh, Sometimes you look this way and you're like, well, the pastor doesn't live the same life I live. That's true. But you also then sometimes will say, yeah, and he doesn't have the pressures that I have, peer pressure. That's what's not true. I do. And that one decision to pull out is going to cost me a bunch of friends. It's going to cost me professional networking. It's going to cost me speaking engagements. Uh, There's a price to pay every time you make a stand. Now, I don't regret that. It's the right decision, and I stand by the decision that I made i want you this morning to think of a time when those around you were doing something wrong something you had holy spirit convicting you about and you said this doesn't feel right this doesn't sound right this doesn't look right and in that moment you felt the pressure to go along with everyone else but you knew you wouldn't be right in god's eyes if you went along with everyone else and you find yourself in that tension of having to make a decision and a lot of times you have to make it on the spot. A lot of times there's not time to sit and reflect and think and, you know, sometimes you're thrust into a decision. And there you are and there comes the peer pressure at you. What do you do? Uh, one of our uh, elders called me this week and uh, uh, I've discipled him for, you know, Uh, more than a decade and he called me and said pastor I want to talk something out with you and uh, we've talked a lot about the pressure that comes with being an executive a a high-ranking official in a business and uh, how you know you have to comport yourself and how you have to act and how you have to entertain and and uh, there was a time in his life when he was the life of the party let me say it a better way he was a party animal okay to an excess, okay? (laughs) To an excessive degree to where he didn't have a good testimony with his co-workers. And uh, uh, he left his career over that. He withdrew because he got saved, he got right with God, he got a lot of things changed in his life, and he didn't feel comfortable because he had been such a bad testimony in this prominent corporation. And, uh, uh, you know, a decade later, God opened a door and he went right back to the corporation he left a decade earlier, right back into an executive role uh, You know the, the the cornerstone stance we believe is the biblical stance uh, the bible doesn 't say you can 't drink everybody in the bible 's drinking that 's very clear uh, the bible doesn 't even say you can 't get drunk. The Jews all get drunk on, on passover it 's got four cups of wine and Uh, I've showed you on uh, the Feast of Purim, they're totally plastered, the whole nation, okay? What the Bible is clearly against is a drunkard's lifestyle, okay? What the Bible's against is alcohol having control of you, when only the Holy Spirit's supposed to have control of you. Now, for many, that means you can't have a drink, Okay, I come from a family of addicts. Susan comes from a family of addicts. And there are lots of people in our immediate family that cannot have a drink. If they do, there's no turning it off. Okay? Until you black out. Now, if that's you, alcohol's off limits for you. Is that fair? If that's not you, then alcohol's not off limits for you. If alcohol's not off limits for you, then you have to be Uh, aware of how alcohol affects people who it is off limits for and you don't put them in a bad situation okay so there's a lot of a lot of little nuances to issues like this well this particular leader in our church went back to the same corporation where he used to be an executive he's an executive again uh he's a fantastic worker company's going to thrive under his leadership He's, he's incredible and right out of the gate he was thrust into a situation where the whole team of executives were having alcohol. And he had to say in that moment, I can't. <laughs> They're like, let us get you a shot. Uh, let's get you a shot of tequila. You know, most of you would say, yay. Uh, he, said, he said, I can't. That's who I was a decade ago when I was here, and I can't do that because I've had to make some changes in my life because that kind of got control of me and I don't want to go back down that road. Now, he wasn't obnoxious. he is very gracious. And he had to make an explanation, and he did. And they honored that. Now, let me just tell you what happened two weeks later. Two weeks later, those executives circled back to him and he's now leading two of the other executive team in a Bible study. In two weeks, he'll be starting small circle with them, God willing. You say, what happened? Well, he kind of he came out of the closet as a Christian and he made a stand on one issue that was his issue of something he really struggled with. Now, I want to be very careful with what I'm saying and this in my notes. I'm just kind of riffing right now, so bear with me. One of the problems with my spiritual ancestors, the people who brought the gospel to us, is they wanted to make everything a life and death stand. And when you are against everything, it's like the boy who cried wolf. No one listens to you anymore. What do you think of the government? I'm against them. What do you think of Elvis? I'm against him. What do you think of fried chicken? I'm for that. They will eat themselves to gluttony. That's not something they're against. They're against alcohol and mini skirts and dancing and laughing and electric guitars. They're against everything. Okay? They're against everything. The problem with being against everything is the Bible's not against everything and God's not against everything. You have to find the thing in culture that's worth making a stand on. I think murdering babies is probably the place in your culture where you could draw a line and say, I've got a very strong opinion about this as a follower of Christ. My culture says this is okay I feel like life may be sacred and I want to make a stand here. And I'm just using that as one example. What I want to say to you is if you make a stand on every minor third-rate issue that's not a big deal to God, you're going to lose your testimony in front of the world. They're not going to listen to you. Daniel did not separate himself from culture. He and the three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, assimilated fully into culture. They took their identity. They changed their names. They changed their language. They gave them a new education. They gave them a new set of laws. uh, They took their manhood. I mean, I've given you the whole background of this situation. They fully immerse. You say they're unique. They're not unique. Joseph was sold into slavery. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He's got an Egyptian wife that's Pharaoh's daughter that was given to him. He's fully immersed into Egyptian culture. Moses was fully Egyptian. In the Egyptian culture. They fully immersed into what they were. What they did is they made a stand when it came to the one issue where God said to them, you can't do this. And for most of them, the one issue was bowing down to an idol. Okay? That was the, the red line. Oh, the line in the sand, we would say, in Texas. Where they said, okay, now if you're going to say I've got to bow down to an idol... You know, I'll, I'll I'll drink your wine, I'll eat your food, I'll go to your dance, I'll fully assimilate, but here becomes a thing I can't cross over, because to do that would be the gravest insult to the the only true God, and here I make my stand. Now as I talk about this story, all I want to say to you is this, you can't make a stand on everything, if you do, you elevate every issue to equal of this issue, and you can't do that because you confuse everybody around you. Whether you wear a a, a style of clothes or how you comport yourself or your views on alcohol dancing and rock and roll and whatever, listen, if they legalize marijuana all over the United States, that's not where you should make your stand. Don't be offended at me. We can talk about it later. But who cares? Who cares, honestly? Honestly. Your doctor is already prescribing to you something stronger than that and half of you are on it. Amen. <laughs> Going to marijuana might be a step down from the hard drugs you're taking. Let's be honest. A- and the Baptists have more problems with sugar and carbs than any group on the planet. So we've got our own issues. Don't make us stand on everything. You need to let Holy Spirit tell you where the real issues are. And the real issues are going to have something to do with your testimony and your worship of God. And when you get to that issue, then it's probably time for you to take a stand in your culture. I'm not here to preach my personal preferences to you. I'm not even going to tell you where to take the stand, except on idolatry I will. I'm not going to tell you about all the small issues. What I'm going to say to you is you ought to be listening to God's Spirit speaking to you on the inside. He'll tell you where to take a stand and it won't be on some third-rate issue, He'll speak to you on something very serious that has to do with God being glorified as God, idolatry, or something like that. Those are the biggies where Christians take stands, and that's what you're going to see this morning. If you think about a time where you're thrust into the limelight to make a decision, you realize the peer pressure that can come at you. Man, it's powerful. Peter, warming by the fire, a little girl says, You're one of the. He starts cussing and swearing. You say, What happened? He got scared. He got scared. And you know what it's like to be scared in front of your friends and in front of your professional associates, you know, uh, and to be put in the limelight and to feel that pressure coming down on you, like start sweating and turn red. And you're like, What am I going to do? How can I get out of this gracefully? God will help you with that. Just make sure the issue is worth taking a stand on. In chapter 3 of Daniel, our story opens with Daniel's three friends. You know them to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their real Jewish names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. In your uh, modern Bible, you don't have the apocryphal books in there. Uh, They're not considered sacred canon, but they are considered historical they're in, a lot of, they're in the old KJV for hundreds of years. They're in the Catholic Bible. Uh, in that collection of books, uh, there is a, a book called The Prayer of Azariah. We have linked it in U version this morning so that many of you have never seen that. You can read The Prayer of Azariah. And this records uh, uh, what was said in the fire. Uh, this records what happens in the fiery furnace, and uh, uh, in the apocryphal works. Now, I'm not sure if it's period correct, it's probably written after the time of Christ, but nonetheless, it'll be fascinating for you, if you've never seen that, to see that document. Daniel is not in this story this morning, even though it's Daniel chapter 3. This story is about his three friends. And the three friends, I'm going to say God's people. Whenever you read Jews over here in the Old Testament, you can substitute God's People. That's what that means. You are now God's people. You are new Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel collective and we're no longer Jew specific. We are Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and free. We're all together in the church of Jesus Christ. But if you want to say God's people prior to the new covenant in the Old Testament, that would be the Jews. Well, here are the three Jews and this story is about them in the court Uh, in Babylon, and they are yet again plunged into a life-and-death situation. On the surface, it's going to seem like it's a conflict between people. But as we saw last week, it's not really a conflict between people. The real issue is between idols and God. And this God versus idols theme keeps being played over and over, and it's the epicenter of chapter number 3. In chapter number 2, last week, the drama was about the source of wisdom. Remember that? Who can tell me the dream? Well, you tell us, King, and we'll explain it. No, I'm not going to tell you. You tell me what I dreamed. like Nobody's ever done that. No one can do that. There is no God who can answer that. The gods don't live among me. And all of this kind of stuff. Chapter 2 was a drama about the source of wisdom. Where is wisdom? What's the ultimate source of wisdom <clears throat> is wisdom found in the mantic arts these uh, dark arts of soothsaying and astrology and harry potterism or is real wisdom found uh, in god is god the source of true wisdom and chapter two answers that that god is of course in chapter three uh, the topic is about power it's not about wisdom now this is a power struggle in chapter three what is the source of True power, Uh, as tears for fears, that wise counsel from the 80s observed of the human condition. Everybody wants to rule the world. Uh, And that's what's going on in the Old Testament of your Bible. This is a summation of human history. Everybody wants to rule the world. And it's empire after empire after empire after empire The Bible uses this word, kingdom after kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. But there is a kingdom coming. Remember the statue. There is a kingdom coming that's going to start small and fill the whole world. And that's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And the person who brings that kingdom in is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's bringing in an eternal kingdom. Now I just want to say to you, that kingdom's here right now and it's growing. I just showed you. Picture after picture after picture and 15 more about to be baptized right into the kingdom. It's growing. It's growing every day. It's growing every week of your life. Human history is about kings and kingdoms flexing their muscle and exerting pressure and coercing compliance through the threat of violence. This is the story that really rubs you wrong. When you hear about uh, inquisitions and crusades, and, and ethnic cleansings and holy wars still being fought out in human history. You, you followers of Christ can already anticipate the outcome of challenging God to a raw contest of power. You can already anticipate how that's going to turn out. Because there's been several classic cases in your Old Testament where Moses pierced Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, You know, who sent you? And Moses says, I am has sent me. Pharaoh says, I don't know who your God is. We've got all kinds of gods here, all kinds of idols. But this new one that you're in, I don't know who that is. And Pharaoh defies God. Well, he will know God in just about ten plagues. He'll know him. He'll know him. The death angel will visit ultimately on the night of the Passover and Pharaoh will say, get out of here. Your God is God and he's one. Get out of here. Uh, there are many cases in the Bible where uh, God is challenged in a raw contest of power by idols. Elijah gathers on top of Mount Carmel, where we'll be next year with the group going to Israel. He gathers with 450 prophets of Baal and they each set up an altar and let us see its contest see who's God. Where is real power? And uh, they gather on top of Mount Carmel. Elijah says this. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. And if your idol, Baal, is God, follow Him. Don't waver. Just make a choice. Who are you going to choose? Who is God? Now, in just a few minutes, uh, He'll call fire down from heaven. Consume the altar. Consume the sacrifice. Consume the water. Consume the dust. Maybe he had 450 prophets of Baal that afternoon before God turns the famine of the country around and, and great deliverance and all of this. Uh, they found out, Ahab and Jezebel did, that you cannot challenge God to a raw contest of power or the skies will open up and God will do something. <laughs> That's what happened. Now, it's, it's, this story this morning is very reminiscent of that type of, of vibe. There are many Old Testament passages on God's power, but this one in Daniel is designed in such a way to present a very encouraging message for we, God's people, who are living in a stressed out environment. The the theme of the book of Daniel is simply this, despite present circumstances, God is in control. If you'll remember that statement, it'll help you out a, a lot during the week. Despite sitting here in the doctor's office, God is in control. Despite sitting here in the principal's office, God is in control. Despite sitting here in court, God is in control. Despite what I'm dealing with, God is in control. Now you contrast that with the modus operandi of the pagans. The pagans operate under the design that we will take your life away if you don't comply. Threat of violence, threat of death. It's how we get people. You, you read about like the Spanish Inquisition and you're like, you know, you will uh, convert to Christianity or what? Or we'll put you in the Iron Maiden or on the rack or whatever. Uh, it's a very bizarre way of getting people to be, you know, believing on Jesus, isn't it? It really speaks to the love of Jesus when you're pulling somebody's fingernails out, you know? So this is what we have to offer you. <laughs> it's really bizarre. That's a pagan mentality that says we'll, we'll threaten you with death and you must, uh, uh, convert to our, our way of belief. The pagans' greatest tool is the threat of death. That's the ultimate weapon in their arsenal is to say, you will be communist or we will kill you. You will be or we will behead you. The threat of death. What's very interesting is that God throughout the Bible keeps showing His people that He doesn't threaten you with death. He says even though death is a reality, I have the power to overcome death. God keeps promising a life worth living to all who will follow Him. He keeps promising an abundant life, everlasting life life beyond death and this chapter and this message are to remind you that even though you're facing overwhelming odds that things may not work out right for you that you need to take heart and be brave and live a courageous life because death does not have the last word in your life god has the ultimate power over death book of revelation i have the keys ...of death and hell. I am he that was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. That's the message the Bible keeps telling you. It's almost like God's saying to you, I know everybody's threatening you with death to convert. Don't worry about it. Even if they kill you, I'll raise you again. I have power over death. I get the last say in eternal life. Now here comes the, the text. It begins with the king's image, which is interesting because he had the dream about the image... We don't know how much time has passed. I'm thinking some time. Some time has passed. But now we get another image. This is what's interesting. Daniel 3.1 King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. And he set it up, the, the statue, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now the questions from my brain start coming really quickly now. Because there's a lot of things here that are not revealed to us. What is the image of? We're not told if the image of the image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. When I read from chapter two right into three, that's what I tend to believe because Daniel says, so you are the head of gold. Remember that? And he, and he explains the kingdoms. So I, I think if I'm just reading right through, well, this is Nebuchadnezzar, but the Babylonians didn't usually worship the king as a deity. So maybe it's an idol of their primary god, the Babylonian primary gods of Marduk. Maybe it's an idol of Marduk. I don't know for sure. We're not told. And the reason we're not told is because really it's not essential to the story. What's essential to the story is that an idol is set up and the people are going to be commanded to bow down and worship the idol. That's the essential element in the story. The people are going to have to worship the statue And really, they're worshiping what it represents is the ultimate power in the universe. Now, this puts God's people in an impossible situation. You know lines in the sand? Here we go. We're we're, we're, we're serving in your administration. We're we're a part of Babylon now. We've assimilated into the culture. You know, life's going along fine and everything's good. And we're able to navigate and operate the culture that's not a, a Christian culture. But now we come to the point where you're going to coerce everyone. You've built this big idol and you're going to want everybody to bow down and worship the idol. This is going to be a problem for God's people. We're told that the idol is 90 feet tall, shockingly tall. And I want you just to think about that for a minute. This is a very, very ancient text, the book of Daniel. Uh, 90 feet is probably the largest image of in the world at that time, uh, just to put that in perspective for you, the Colossus of Rhodes is 108 feet tall. Does everybody know what the Colossus of Rhodes you all know what the Colossus of Rhodes is? Colossus of Rhodes is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, you know what a harbor looks like where they sell ships in and there's like big, big uh, breakwaters out here that keep the waves from coming into the harbor, like big jetties? The Colossus of Rhodes, there's two big jetties and there's a big bay, and the Colossus of Rhodes was like the Statue of Liberty. It was a big, uh, big statue that stood like this, and it was so big, 108 feet tall. They could sail ships into the harbor between its legs. Uh, have you ever anybody been to St. Louis and seen the big arch? You know, it's kind of like that. It was a it was a it was a big statue standing at the, one of the seven wonders of the world. You say, why haven't I seen it? Because an earthquake shook the world and it shook him and broke him loose, and <laughs> he fell into the ocean. So but at 108 feet tall, it was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. At 90 feet tall, almost as tall, this would have been an impressive, it's very skinny and very tall and gold, and it glistened in the sun. It's like a golden missile out there on the plains of Dura. Uh, the Statue of Liberty, with modern uh, technology and, and metallurgy, Statue of Liberty is only 151 feet tall. So put some perspective to this. This was quite a work, and there was obviously a giant furnace for melting that uh, gold or whatever was overlaid on this out there on the plains where this statue was built. Let me read verse 2. Then he summoned the satraps, it's it's a ruling office, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Your author's trying to get you to understand the pomp and circumstance involved in this. The whole cabinet has been invited. Everyone who is anyone with any authority has been called to this meeting and they're going to dedicate the image and everybody's going to have a big worship ceremony. Verse 3. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, there are quotes in your Bible, the herald is about to speak, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horns, the flutes, the zither, has anybody got a zither they can play for us this morning? A zither, I don't know what that is. It's like a flugel phone from Dr. Seuss. A zither, a lyre, a harp, a pipe. And all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6. Whosoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Welcome everyone to the dedication service. We're going to have a great worship this morning. Anyone who doesn't praise and worship with us, we're going to take you through those doors and throw you into the fiery furnace. Well, that's weird, isn't it? It seems really bizarre to us, but they are coercing worship to an idol under a threat of death. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, and the harp, and all kinds of music. It's a worship service. All the nations of the peoples of every language. It's a big empire. All kinds of people in the empire. All of the different peoples, language. Now, there's some... When when I'm reading this, there's something here that's like an undertone to me that says Nebuchadnezzar's got a lot of issues. Ego, insecurity, we'll talk about those in a minute. But also that maybe he's trying to unite all of these provinces through one, one common worship maybe he's trying to get them a common god. You got your god, you got your god, you got your god, you got your and I'm trying I'm trying to rule over all these people. Let's see if we can get them together around some commonality here. And so all these peoples are commanded to come together and they fell down and worshiped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the author has intentionally written this in a way that you are to understand there's incredible pomp and circumstances and big fanfare has heightened the tension of the moment and the people are coerced and say, if you don't bow down, death, but go ahead and bow down, it'll all be good. And so everybody is bowing down, no one's pushing back and the tension is built through this long list of dignitaries, all nations, all peoples, all tongues, the satraps, the governors, the this, the that. The tension is being built by the author by basically saying to you, everyone complied. Everyone complied. I mean, the king looks out and there's just nothing but people kneeling across the plain by the millions as far as your eye can see, because disobedience is unthinkable. Conflict in the court. The king is so delighted with his uh, uh, inauguration, dedication of his image, had a beautiful day, it's a beautiful worship service, everyone bowed, everyone's in unity here, and then he, his day is ruined when he finds out that some have disobeyed him, verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now what you're going to read when you keep reading Some astrologers are going to accuse some Jews. That's the language you'll see in the following verses. Some of these magi have singled out some of the Jewish magi. And this contingent of magi come forward to make an accusation against God's people. Verse 9. They said to the king, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe... And all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whosoever does not fall down and worship the image must be thrown in a blazing furnace. Twelve. But there are some Jews. King, you may not be aware of this. We've just come to be a friend to you, of course. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Do you remember those guys from chapter 2 who got set over the province of Babylon? Babylon. And how did they get set over the province of Babylon? Because their buddy Daniel gave them a job reference and told the king, you need to put these three guys in charge because these are God's people and they're going to do you right. They're going to, they're going to be hard workers. They're going to be honest. They're not going to steal money out of the register. They're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to show up on time. They're going to advance your interests. They're, they're not going to poison you, king. These are people you can trust. And Daniel got his buddies promoted. Now these are the three men that are being singled out by this contingent of astrologer. There are some Jews whom you've set over the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Oh, this is not going to go well. It's not, it's going to be very personal, isn't it? There's a lot of personal pronouns here. King, they don't pay any attention to you. They don't serve your gods. They don't worship the image of gold you've set up. The accusation is that some Jews, particularly those three who happen to be our boss, who rule over Babylon, those three that Daniel got promoted, those people don't listen to you. They're only serving their own interests. Now, you have to understand what it was like being an ancient king. You didn't have a long lifespan, typically. Somebody assassinated you, poisoned you. You know, your kids rose up against you and tried to overthrow you. It is wild being a king in, in the ancient world. When I'm reading this story, I've got questions like crazy that I want the Bible to answer, and it doesn't always answer the questions I want it to answer. It tells the story that God wanted to tell, and sometimes I wish God had wrote it differently. But he wrote it the way he wrote it, and so we have to go with that. But I have questions. Here's my first question. Where's Daniel? Okay. Where's Daniel? And you're thinking, well, Daniel must have bowed down. No, Daniel would have never bowed down. I know that about Daniel. He would have never bowed down. Daniel's out of town. Daniel clearly is not here. And if you read chapter number 2, you get that sense that the king says, Daniel, I want you to do this. And Daniel says, no, let these three rule over Babylon, where you're at, king, and I'm going to rule over this other thing, like the prime minister, the number one president or vice president. Clearly, Daniel isn't here. He's not even mentioned in the whole thing. I have another question. Were there other Jews at the ceremony? There were thousands of Jews taken captive in the the dispersion. Were there other Jews at the ceremony? I don't know. Did those Jews bow down if they were at the ceremony? I have a lot of questions about the whole worship service, but none of my questions are answered. It seems that Daniel's in the royal palace, according to chapter 2, verse 29. But the big takeaway, the author has designed the story so that you're asking yourself, what is the motivation of the accusers? Why have some of these astrologers come forward and singled out these three? The clue is found in verse 12. Some Jews you have set over the province of Babylon. Uh, I think it's fairly clear that uh, what we're dealing with here is professional jealousy. These astrologers have said, these Jews are a boss and we hate it. How can we get rid of our boss? Push him off a cliff, poison his coffee, put him in the paper shredder. What are we going to do to the boss to get rid of him? And so they figured out that now they've got a place to accuse. These Jews will never bow down and worship the idol. They're they're devout, uh, you know, Yahweh worshipers. Idols are completely off limits to them. We got them right here. Some Jews, king, don't listen to you. And they happen to be the three that are running the province of Babylon. And as they tell the story, you can tell there are three strikes against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right from the from the get go. We're on chapter three. What was chapter number one? God's people win all honors at Magi University. In that chapter one, they win all honors. It was just a complete sweep with Daniel and his friends for the top four positions. Ah, strike one. It, it, they have risen rapidly through the ranks of government from, from captives to now governors over the province. Strike two. Strike three is this. They are Jews. They are God's people. And these astrologers know exactly how to work the king's ego. Exactly how to do it. They appeal to his sense of vanity. They spin the facts So that bowing down becomes a personal affront to the king. There are three personal pronouns used right in a row here. They pay no attention to you. They don't serve you. They don't worship you. They don't listen to you. I think we can all predict what the king's outcome is going to be. Can't you? He's an egomaniac, as most of these ancient kings were. And he's being played by a court of advisors. And they're going to whip him into a a rage, they're going to whip him into a frenzy, and the, the outcome is very predictable. Now, before I go with the sermon, I just want to make a very uh, small application right here. In the modern world of social media and the idol of self, uh, in the last decade, I, I, I've had to talk to a lot of Christians off the ledge Because not enough people liked their post. The whole world has just bowed down to one man. Except for three. I would say that's a pretty good deal. Let it go. And be happy. But it's the three people who didn't like the image, dedication, ceremony... That make him furious. It's not who liked it. By the millions. It's the three that didn't like it. Now I've already showed you this. In the story of Esther as well. The whole nation bowed to Haman. The number two. In the province of Persia. There's only one person. Who wouldn't bow down. And he had an exemption from the court. Not to bow down. He was a national hero. Named Mordecai. And when the whole world bowed to Haman. He couldn't see. The thousands of people on their knees honoring him, he could only see one man standing who wouldn't give him a thumbs up or a little heart. That's all he could see. And it made him crazy. Just made him crazy that he got personally angry and worked up about that and and sinned over that. Now, I just want to say to the Christian community don't be these people. I want to be real honest with you. If you go through life with a handful of real friends, you're a blessed person. You don't need 10,000 likes. Does your spouse love you? Okay, you got to start right there. Do your kids still like you? Okay, you probably got a couple right there. All right? If not, you win them over before it's done. All right? Surely your mother loves you. You know? Okay, maybe not. Some of you grumbled a little right there. All I'm saying to you is if you've got a handful of people who will always be there for you you don't need the whole world. I'm going to say it now a different way. If you've got a handful of human beings that love you and will be there all the way with you and you've got Jesus Christ you need nothing else. A matter of fact if you've got Jesus Christ you need nothing else but it sure is nice to go through life with some real friends. One of the things I hope we're building right here in this room is some real community where we're able to sit with each other in discipleship groups and be authentic, be our real selves. And we've got, you know, we, we've all got our issues. we all got our sins we're struggling with. We've all got our warts and our baggage. But we're learning to love each other in spite of that. And we're learning to move forward. And we're learning to, to be better, to be more like Christ. And we're learning to, we don't have to pretend to be perfect. Listen, if you've got people like this in your life, you're a blessed person. You're a ble- Listen, let me just ask you a question. If you had a crisis tonight at 1 o'clock in the morning and you had to pick the phone up and call someone for help, who would you call? Do you have an answer to that question? Yes, if you have an answer to that question, you're a blessed person. Yes. Let me ask you this. The person that you would have hypothetically called, would they have shown up? Yes, then you're a blessed person. Because not everybody can say that. King Nebuchadnezzar can't trust anybody. They just soon poison him as look at him. You're a blessed person. These people are fabulously wealthy and powerful. They're not happy. They're miserable. You're a blessed person. Well, here comes the confrontation. Before I read the king's response, you, you get the sense already that the king has some insecurity issues. He's not alone. Almost all ancient kings have. Insecurity issues. It's a common paradox that you'll see. Many, and even in our contemporary culture, who are famous and wealthy and powerful leaders, are the, some of the most insecure people on the planet. Those movie stars you idolize, they're incredibly insecure and shallow, many of them. Those sports stars that we idolize, they're one, energy, one injury away from complete. Oblivion. Nobody will even know you a year from now. That's a lot of pressure to live with. That's scary to live with. The king's incredibly insecure. He's the most powerful human on earth. He's the wealthiest man on earth. And with those two things comes incredible insecurity because people want to take away those two things. You wonder why Putin is... Who he is? He's terrified. He's the wealthiest man on the planet, most corrupt man on the planet, one of the most powerful men on the planet, and he knows that given the opportunity, his own inside circle would poison him tonight. Just that, just like that. Somebody put a bullet in him, just if they thought they'd get away with it, in five minutes, he'd be done. Now that's what it's like to be one of these officials. This king's incredibly insecure. And insecurity makes you especially susceptible to peer pressure. I'm going to just direct this message right this way a little bit. Insecurity makes you susceptible to peer pressure. So one of the things you want to do with your small group leader and your youth pastors and the team, the adults that lead you is talk about your insecurities. We want to deal with those. We want to to come to grips with those. Because the more you can manage your insecurities the less susceptible you'll be to peer pressure the reason many of you are going to do things that you never thought you would do is because your peers are you know offering you something in that moment and you don't know how to say no and say face and you're insecure that you're going to lose your 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 position in the group or your power in the group or your authority in the group or you're going to lose face somehow and you're going to cave into something that you never dreamed you would do all because of insecurity and peer pressure and parents are supposed to be helping solve these issues as well. Now the, the whole story is set up on the premise that bowing to the statue is a test of personal loyalty to the king. The report that three people did not bow down sends the king to the moon. So the king confronts them and he sets up a private worship ceremony just for these three. Now, if you don't think peer pressure is getting ratcheted up, now you're being called in. They're going to have a private worship service so you can bow down, just you and the king and these people who've accused you. Yikes, the pressure is turned up. Chapter 3, verse 13, furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? We'll give you one more chance. When you hear the sound of the hort, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down, just take your time, boys. This one's for you. When you're good and ready, now fall down and worship the image that I have made. And if you do, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. What a nut job. Okay. Watch what he says now because this becomes critical to the story. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He has set Himself up as the biggest power in the universe. You will bow down, and if you don't bow down, there is no God that's going to be able to save you. Because I am the richest, most powerful entity in the universe. We've come to the heart of the matter now with the story. This is where the author was going all along. Chapter 2, the Magi said, No God has wisdom to answer the king. And then the real God showed up. Now the king says, I have power above all gods. Chapter two is a wisdom contest. Chapter three is a power contest. And you should hear God chuckling right now. When Nebuchadnezzar says, and, and what God is there that will say? You should hear God, you should hear one of the angels snort a little bit in the background. You know, everybody in heaven's laughing. You say, how do you know that? Psalm two. Psalm two records a thing like this. Here's what Psalm 2 says. Let me just read a couple of verses. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven snorts. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and He terrifies them in His wrath. Uh, the old KJV says, the Lord will have them in derision. He will laugh. Can, can you imagine the creation saying to the Creator, I'm the most powerful thing in the universe. God, <laughs> that's a good one, Ned. That's a good one. You make God laugh, man. You're funny, but you're not. You're funny, but you're not, okay? That's kind of what's going on here. So he says, you're going to bow down, private worship ceremony, and we're going to get to it. And I want your answer right now. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we uh, serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, this is important to the story. There is a very real possibility they're about to be dead. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, notice the tact, (laughs) that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, what they do very tersely is they acknowledge their faith that God has the power to save them, but they also envision the reality that in the next few minutes, God may choose not to save them, and they may go up in smoke. And they will be ashes in just a few minutes. They have no idea how this story is going to end. You've been to Sunday school as a child. You know how it's going to end. They didn't know how it was going to end. They said we know that God is the most powerful thing in the universe. And he's able to save us. He may choose not to. You say why would they say that? Because God has allowed many of his people to be martyred. Millions and millions of your brothers and sisters have been martyred. And they went to the stake, and they went to the beheading, and they went to the instruments of torture, praising God and praying, and died with the the, the worship on their lips. And these three know the real history of being a follower of God. And they say, we know God is the ultimate power in the universe, and He can save We think He will, but if He doesn't, we still will not bow. Now, I want you to just embrace this. They know enough of the Ten Commandments to know. Let me read you Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt from the land of slavery. Commandment 1. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment 2. You now shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You're not allowed to bow down to, the, to, to worship an image. To, to call it God, to give it uh, 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 glory, to ascribe power to it, and by not worshiping the false deity, the three have become role models to every generation of Christians that have ever lived. Everyone looks to this story and says, This is what it's like to defy power and to speak truth to power. They fully assimilated into culture, but now they've come to a moment where they can't go along anymore. This is their issue now. And their issue is, yeah, we we can't do this, king. Sorry. listen, we'll serve you. We'll advance your kingdom. But listen, we can't do this because this is a direct affront to the real God that we we worship. Now, the reason this story is hard for us is because that doesn't resonate to us too much. We have never been compelled to worship an idol. We have never felt pressure over our faith. In our American culture. Uh, This photo was sent to me uh, two days ago. This is uh, our spiritual granddaughter right here. That is the disciple of our disciple. In the evening talk time. Let's call her Ruby. We're going to keep her name blurred out. In the evening talk time with Ruby, her faith towards God is so pure. She is waiting for the right time. She's waiting for God's time. You say, well, why don't you just accept Jesus? Because she worries about the family and the relatives if she chooses Jesus. Then they will let her down and they will hate her. Please remember her in your personal prayer. Leave that picture there for just a moment. I just want to, marinate on that for a minute how old do you think that girl is in the pink 14, 15, 16 she's faced now with the decision that if she receives Christ her family may throw her out and disinherit her or kill her most of us have never felt this kind of pressure This was two days ago. This is normal with our disciples in Asia. Very normal. It's more normal than the other, actually. She'd love to accept Jesus. But she's so worried about what's going to happen if she comes out and professes her faith in Jesus Christ. What will the ramifications be in my culture? What will happen in my family? What will happen with my peer group? Will I be persecuted? Will I be outcast? Will I be living on the street as a teenager? Will I be thrust into crime and prostitution? Will someone take me? What's going to happen with my life if I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior? Yeah, I realize the idols are nothing. They're just man-made. But the idols represent something. They represent bits of creation being escalated to the level of creator. That's the problem. Much of your Bible is written to God's people who are facing persecution and the threat of death. And much of your Bible, some of the hardest parts like the book of Revelation, much of your Bible is what we would call resistance literature. It's literature written to people like Ruby who are struggling with what to do and how to live out your faith in a hostile environment. Let me go to my fourth point, supernatural deliverance. Let me read verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. He's an egomaniac. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his armies to tie up, this is important to the story, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, the furnace so hot, that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. 23, and these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? Replying, certainly your majesty, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire." unbound, unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. KJV looks like the son of God. Some other versions, looks like the angel of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing fire and shouted Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out of there, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Now Nebuchadnezzar has put himself in the place of God. In a fit of rage, he has declared that he has the ultimate power and that what God shall save you from my wrath. Well, he just got his answer, didn't he? God has saved His people because God alone is the one who can actually say that. And as a matter of fact, He did say it in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Listen to the words of God. See now that I myself am He. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. Those are the words of the real God. Well, we have a lot of questions now as we get ready to wrap this story. Who's the fourth? I see three people. There's the fourth. Wait, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who is this guy? And he looks like the son of God. Now, what's clear to us is that God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. While Nebuchadnezzar is no theologian, uh, he calls him one like, unto a, a, son, like a son of God. Whatever it was about the fourth person made such an impact on Nebuchadnezzar that he said, this looks supernatural right here. This is no ordinary man. This is someone like the Son of God or like the angel of God in verse number 28. And when the story closes, it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's going to get honor. Yet again, the story is going to be a complete plot shift and the people who are about to die are not going to die, and the king who's going to get all the glory is about to get none of the glory, and the god who they're about to insult is about to get all the glory. Everything's about to be flipped around now in one closing paragraph. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, verse twenty-eight: "Praise be the god of Shadrach. the guys all over the map, isn't he? He's all over the map. Praise be the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants." They trusted in Him and defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god besides their own god. You know what? I'm going to make a decree. Will you just go ahead, (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar? What's your decree? Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let me see, will be cut into pieces. And their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save this way. That's Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, they were right not to worship me. I'm not even in the stratosphere with their god. No god can do. Their god is the god of wisdom, chapter 2. And Jehovah God, Yahweh God, is the god of all power, chapter 3. Now, if nothing else, the book of Daniel teaches you about your god, doesn't it? You are tapped into the ultimate source of wisdom in the universe. You are connected to the ultimate source of power in the universe. This story all began when jealous co workers accused God's people of insubordination. Obviously, their goal was self serving. They wanted to get these three out of the way so they could get promoted. But God is the master of flipping the script. Peripety strikes once again. Here is the God of the plot twist. When the story closes, God is being worshiped, not a golden idol. God's people are being promoted, not the astrologers. God's people are being honored and end up ruling over the kingdom. You know what? That's the big story the Bible's trying to tell. We are created to be living images of God. Your divine vocation is to reflect God to this world. Now for you, we operate in an enlightened culture that does not worship idols of stone and wood and gold. Your culture has fully embraced the ultimate idol, the idol of self. It's a different idol. Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher... In the Enlightenment era, coming out of the Enlightenment, he embraced the idea that human beings created God, not the other way around. Nietzsche said it wasn't God that created you. You, humans, created the concept of God. And what Nietzsche taught is Nietzsche said, so now it's time for us to kill God. That idea is now passe and outdated. Since you invented God, it's now time for humanity to kill God. So Nietzsche proclaimed God is dead. And that's what he's famous for promoting. And so now in the absence of God, humanity is free to create our own reality. Life can mean whatever we choose it to mean. That's where you're living. Where people are just making it up as they go. But all substitutes for God are nothing more than bowing the knee to worship the idol of self. And what a post-Christian America is discovering is that a worship of self leads to death. Cultural death, national death, and individual death. We'll each have to find a place where we're going to make a stand in our own culture it's not my place to say hey stand on this and stand on this and you know make your stand this i think you and god will work that out but i would caution you don't take a stand on everything or really you don't stand on anything you can't be against every little nitpicky thing in your culture the people of the bible fully immersed in their culture embrace your culture you're American. E hot dogs and apple pie and, and, and rock and roll. That's your heritage. Embrace it. Okay? But there's going to be a place in your own culture where you're going to have to draw a line and say, I can't go beyond this. Because now I feel like this is a personal insult to God. Let me close with just a few observations. Remember that God saved them in the fire. God didn't save them from the fire. And a lot of times we think if we're going through trials, well, God's not with us. That's not true. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. But He allowed them to go into the fire. But He also brought them out of the fire. Remember this too, that God saved them in the presence of the fourth. The fourth is the Son of God. And God, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, is living in every one of you who are a believer. Living late in history. God has come to live among humans. He became flesh. He lived among us. He died on the cross. He rose again. And He sent His Spirit into our hearts. You say, well, He's going to deliver me from death. No, you'll probably taste death. He didn't deliver you from experiencing death. He delivered you from the power of death. We may taste death. But we're going to have life after death. Many of our loved ones have already gone that way. Though no, that's not the end. That's just a new chapter about to launch. That's all. We firmly believe in the resurrection. Death is still with us, but death has no power over us. And God has not arranged things so that you'll never experience death, but God has arranged things so that death has no power over you. Its power is broken by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? You have victory over it this morning. Let me close with a picture that just came in two hours ago. That's Ruby. Today, Ruby accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. This is the one who was struggling. What will happen if I receive Christ two days ago? Two hours before this service, that picture popped in in our feed. And our disciple maker said, well, she made her decision. She has written out her confession of faith. And she has signed it and she is one of us. When you're faced with your decision, I want Ruby to inspire you. I want Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to inspire you. You can make a stand for Jesus, and it's going to be okay. He'll never leave you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I've gone a little beyond my time this morning, so let me lead you quickly to a moment of decision this morning. There's a lot of things to think about in this story maybe you're struggling with having the courage to make a stand that you know you need to take why don't you ask God to give you the courage this morning and the resolve to live for Him I want to say a word to our young people you're just days away now from going back to school I want you to decide this morning that when you go back to school, you're going to be a different version of you than when you were in May and you left school. You may need some new friends or you may just need to let your light shine among the friends you have. Some of you are heading to the university where it's going to be a whole new game, whole new environment. Why don't you just purpose this morning, God, wherever I go, I know you go with me. And I know I'll face new challenges. And I know I'll face new opportunities. But God, I want to be faithful to you. And I want to be courageous. And I want to live for you. I want to be like these disciple makers we've seen on the screen today. Working in their peer group. Maybe you're the person who makes everything of, you know big blown up issue and you realize this morning that you've been a little overzealous you need to calm down a little bit and you need to let the big things be the big things and let the little things go okay sometimes that means parents need to sit with their kids and say I was wrong on a few things these are not big deals as I made them sometimes fewer rules are better if they're good rules This morning, maybe you find yourself struggling because you've never received Christ as your Savior. And when I talk about God living in you, and you see all these pictures of all these people being born again and, and having a new life in Christ, you really never experienced that. Listen, by a prayer of faith this morning, you can receive Christ as your Savior. And in one prayer of faith, He will forgive you of your sins. He'll put His arms around you and welcome you into His family he will not turn you away if you've never received Christ as your savior there's several of our church leaders just in the back of the room they're there to help you you just slip out of your seat and go back there and say hey, I want someone to pray with me they know exactly what to do you don't have to make a speech no one's going to embarrass you you don't have to have a long explanation if you can form this sentence help me I need to be saved they know how to take it from there just slip out of your seat and go take their hand and say pray with me I want to be like these who have received Christ already this week maybe God's talking to you about baptism it's coming up in another week or so if you're going to be baptized why don't you join with them schedule it after service this morning your baptism class for many of you who are visiting Cornerstone I want you to know we're praying with you that God would lead you to a place that you can call your church community we pray this is the place but if it's not we're praying God would lead you where he wants you to be where you'll be utilized and blessed and your spiritual gifts will come to play in a congregation. God has a place for you. And I want you to know we're praying with you this morning about where that'll be. Father, your people are bowed before you this morning. And Lord, many here are dealing with so many different things and they're making their prayers. And God, you're hearing them. I know you are. And you're answering them this morning. God, thank you for a story like this that reminds us that there are places in our culture where we need to make a stand. God, we can't anticipate even what all of those are. But when the moment comes, Lord, give us courage. Lord, give us grace and tact to make make a stand in a gracious way, a way that would honor you and a way that would make a way forward in the days to come. God, for those who every day of their life have to go out and face some type of pressure and opposition, we lift them to you. God, like Ruby and these we've seen this morning, Lord, we lift them to you. Thank you for the courage they have shown. They become role models to us of what it means to be able to stand up for the Savior. God, let us feel your peace as we go, knowing that in us, is the greatest power in the universe. No contest. Hands down. You are God alone. We acknowledge that this morning and we worship you this morning. You are the ultimate power in heaven and earth. You're the great God of the universe and beyond. God, thank you for choosing us and the privilege of calling us your children. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Our benediction from Numbers this morning. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you. And may the Lord give you peace this week. God bless you. We'll see you next week.